This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. The following is a presentation of Morning Drive Media. From the southernmost point of dawn to the lands of always winter, what is west of west and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk. I'm Ken Napsok for another Game of Thrones rewatch episode. And we have reached season two. And that, well, that means it's time to go to Dragonstone. That's right. I finally get the chance to really talk about my best friend in the whole wide world. Stennis Baratheon. But there's a whole lot of other things left to talk about. Just me here today, but I'm uh, glad to be hanging out with all of you as we look at The North Remembers. Uh, episode 11 overall of the show, of course. And uh, it originally aired on April 1st, 2012. No joke, no tricks. There it was. A director, Alan Taylor, which I do believe is in the middle of a four-episode run, going in, uh, ending season one and into season two. Benioff and Weiss, the writers, coming out of the gate right in this one. Kramer Morgenthau is the cinematographer and editing done by Francis Parker. So, this is interesting. Season two. Welcome back, is basically what the show is saying. We, we wowed you the first year, and, and now we're back. And I always like to share my personal journey on, on my Game of Thrones fandom. This At this point, I had become a book reader. After season one or during season one, I ordered the books. Like, all right, they've got me. The story's got me. Let me let me read this fantasy series. But I decided, in order to not spoil the show, I'll read the books after each season. Thinking it was a more straight-ahead book-by-book adaptation. And it was at the beginning. It wasn't until book three, Storm of Swords, season three, season four... They kind of had to split that. And then there you go. It starts going into different directions, and we can have those uh, conversations if you thought there was a good direction or not. But today's not the day. So I had uh, read book one by the time this had shown up. So I didn't know anything that was happening in season two. I, I, I had no, you know, no idea in, in terms of specific things. But I also felt like I, I knew the world a little bit more, that I was uh, deeper in it. And I, that was the benefit of reading the books. I still think if you are uh, not a book reader, even the show over and in, in the rearview mirror of all of us, pick up the books. It, it, does expand, it does expand your overall just knowledge of the world, a little more context, even if it's not a direct you know, one-to-one comparison, so to speak. You just kind of get a sense. You can pick up on the names, the places, the sigils, all those kind of things. Just kind of become a little bit easier for you as you watch. Now, again, I'm I'm talking as if this is an active show. Obviously, it's not. But with House of the Dragon coming, who knows what else is coming down the line in terms of TV and Game of Thrones. I think I think if you, if you haven't read the books yet, now's the time. Plus, you know... George is writing. He's writing very hard. In fact, even this week, news kind of broke. Winter, winds of winter update. Still writing. But 
getting back to my personal journey, like I said, I had uh, I had season season one and rewatched it a few times. I think I bought the uh, DVD. I don't even know about about the Blu-rays. I probably I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember. I, I'm pretty sure it was the DVDs. Had the books. Uh, had the first book completed by the time season two comes in, and and this is where we start to learn about the power and the pain of expectation. It's just the way it is. You can't help. You can't help it. You love something. You get to know something. And then when it continues, you have a lot of time to wonder what is next. Because that's the joy. That's why you love Game of Thrones. That's why you love A Song of Ice and Fire. You're pulled in by the world. You're pulled in by the characters. You want more. And then you get more. And does that match your expectations? Does that match what you just plain and simply wanted? What you wanted to see? Season two. Bigger audience, show's growing, a little bigger budget, still limited, especially compared to what they got in the end. But now the world is watching. The world is waiting. In season two, I think, I think for me, and and, and we can review, I'm, I'm going to bring up a, some talk in here, the Wikipedia page and just some of the, the viewers. The criti- critical reception of, of episode one of season two uh, was, was pretty good. Uh uh, the viewership, oh, there you go. So they had roughly, what, uh, 2.2 million uh, on average in season one. Uh, this one rose to the premiere uh, airing, uh, rose to 3.858 million viewers. So there you go. Big jump. And I'm sure a lot of those people uh, watched uh, over the off season and, and everyone was ready to go. And I think at times, and this is just a very general, uh, certainly not an expert opinion here of just season one had a little bit of that. I mean, okay, uh, you know, uh, I like season one better and season two and a lot of talking, a lot of planning, but it all leads to a big war. And I, I think in 2012, season two wasn't as appreciated as much as it could be. Again, that's very general. That's very general. I don't have a list of reviews or, or, or fan uh, comments in front of me. I'm just, I'm just kind of going back to myself experiencing it and experience it with, uh, with different folks that I watched the show with and friends in my life at that time and friends still in my life at the time. So I do think, though, season two, the appreciation uh, for that season uh, has grown. The understanding of that season, the understanding and, and, and just uh, seeing what they were trying to do and seeing how they streamlined it. Cut ahead to the end of season two. I, by this point, uh, you know, pick up Clash of Kings, or I, sh- I should say pull it off my shelf, my little paperback uh, box set that I got. Red Clash of Kings. And I look, I'll say, I'll say season one of Game of Thrones and the book of Game of Thrones, there's 100% a lot of differences, but it's, it's pretty close. Do you read that even after me seeing the show? And then reading the books, you kind of feel like, yeah, it's the same thing. Like, it, it, like we're, we're in the same ballpark. Season, season two versus book two. I, there's dramatic differences. You start to notice it. And I, I this is maybe, I've said, said it before here, but kind of an unpopular, uh, um, uh, unpopular opinion. But I like season two better than book two. Clash of Kings is great, a lot of detail. But I just think they had a chance to streamline a lot of it. Sacrilegious, I know. Throw the books at me. Throw the books at me. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. But it was, it's, an, it, it, it's an interesting, uh, it's just a perspective thing. And it's, and it's always uh, going to change. Anyways, my appreciation of season two uh, grew. I used to, n- 
again, when I say didn't like a season of Game of Thrones, it's it's still I love it. But season two was one of my lower tier seasons. Now it's absolutely one of my favorite, and I love what they're trying to do. That so let's dive on in. Dive on into uh, the themes and lessons and our favorite scenes and moments here on The North Remembers. The first episode of every season going forward, following the pilot, it still does what the pilot does. Every show does that. You come back and you need to reset the pieces. You need to introduce new characters. You need to kind of introduce new plot lines. Maybe wrap up some or begin to wrap some um, up from season one. The tone changes. The story grows. Even in a movie, even Empire Strikes Back has to do this, you know? So season two and every, I think, every episode one going forward, again, speaking in general terms, it seemed to me like you always hear the same thing. I mean, you know, kind of boring, just kind of set the, set the tone for what's going forward, but it didn't accomplish anything. And I think that's a complaint, you know, not a complaint, but that's a thing you hear about a lot of episode ones going forward. So I think this one has that too. But when really you look at it, I think that's because of the two big themes. Uh, it does a great job of getting you set up for what's going to happen in this season. It truly is putting the pieces on the board. And that, to me, comes down to two themes. Um, protection. A lot about protection going on and what protection means in this world. And then leadership. And Simon Abrams of Slant Magazine at the time in 2012 Talked about how this episode was, it was, the theme was good leadership. And and there's a lot of examples. Everyone kind of, uh, every almost almost every scene is setting the table for the, all the leaders going forward. Well, this this will all kind of come to a head uh, with the, the Battle of Blackwater Bay. Of course, Danny's got her own kind of um, things coming to a head in, in, in Karth eventually, but... You look at you look at episode one of season two through that uh, prism, and it 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 really jumps out at you. It is about leadership and the different styles of leadership. Starting with the protection one, let's go with that. Um, there's the idea of Sansa protecting Dantos Hollard, Sir Dantos um, saving his life. Uh, Danny needs to protect her people. She needs to find safe haven, safe harbor. Bran uh, needs to serve and protect his people. He's uh, he's still at Winterfell. He's the acting Lord of Winterfell. Part of what he has to do, part of his daily duties. The Night's Watch needs protection at Craster's Keep. And they're in that tough position. And that's a position the Night's Watch has been in for a long time with Craster. So I really like those kind of themes of, of protection that go on and on. Uh, more stuff with Rob. His kingdom, his people, his followers, now maybe his sisters, which leads to some of those uh, decisions that Catelyn Stark will make uh, with Jamie Lannister. So there's that kind of thing there. And, and what that means in this world is interesting to me and, and the different, um, you know, the, the different ways of going about doing it, which ties into the big theme of leadership. So not to not to bury that lead. No need to bury the lead. I think this is the biggest theme uh, in this episode of what's going on, the different styles of leadership. I think you can base it around two different quotes. I think the show absolutely makes a comment on which styles are, if not better, just maybe a, just a better way to approach it and in which ways are bad. Two quotes, um, actually three. I got three written down. You have the uh, great stuff with Craster. Craster's not great, but you have the great stuff with him. Where Jon Snow just can't help but speak out. Because that's what Jon is. Season justice. 
See someone he doesn't like, bit of a hothead. He's impulsive. We know that. He's got something to say, and he, he pisses off Craster, which pisses off uh, Jor Mormon. Jor Mormon is uh, a character I love. You know that. But uh, we learn a lot going forward where I think what by uh, uh, episode three, we're going to learn that Jor, you know, he kind of knows what Craster's doing. And they wildly serve crueler gods than you or I type of line of thinking. But back here, you know, and, and so I'm not saying that uh, Jor does everything perfectly, but it's just kind of the way of it. And the Night's Watch just, they are in this position. I think that's important to know. They are, they are forced to work with Craster. Just the way of him. But he's got the great quote here. After he uh, slams Jon Snow up against the pillar. Who, who am I? You're the Lord Commander. Who are you? I'm Jon Snow. Who are you? And then he says, you want to be a leader? To which Jon nods. Well, then learn how to follow. And that's a great way to approach leadership, um, especially in a general sense. And I think John kind of carries that with him all the way through. He is a natural-born leader, definitely leads from the front, even if that gets him in trouble every now and then. And he definitely is for the people, and he makes the decisions that are uh, brave and bold and for the people. And I think uh, he learns how to follow and learns how to have compassion and care about those he's asking to follow him. It gets him into trouble, as we know, but it'll go into you know, the lessons he'll learn this season about the free folk and into season three. But how he sticks with, um, sticks with the Night's, Night's Watch and how that cost him his life, all those kind of things. I think this, is the, this can tie back to that kind of stuff, the kind of, the kind of leader... He is. He's going to be there in the front. He's going to be in the battle, unlike someone like Joffrey, who uh, later on in this episode, in one of my uh, favorite scenes with uh, him and his mother, Cersei, slapping him. We'll talk about that in a bit. But uh, he says, uh, a king does not ask, he demands. And then he proceeds to blame Tywin for Jaime Lannister being captured. That uh, not something he'll want to do to his face later on, even when he tries Put the king to bed with no dinner. Um, so a king does not ask, he demands. We know that's his style. And then on the other day, on the other uh, side of it, you got Maester Lewin and Bran, the acting Lord of Winterfell, um, setting up, uh, you know, what's coming uh, is for some plot points coming up in the season with uh, listening to his, uh, his uh, the folks of Winterfell and sending those, uh, you know, the Masons got to go out and eventually in the coming uh episodes uh he'll he'll have to send out the two orphan boys and all those kind of things this is what brand's doing though right now and he doesn't want to do it and he gets a little mad at uh that uh town's uh townsfolk person that uh wants the four masons or wants to repair his walls because he uh, sent his men to fight in rob's war brand gets mad you mean king rob and it's not not a war he wanted he's, he's avenging your liege lord ned stark and uh, Bran gets understandably and maybe justifiably mad, but Maester Lewin has that great line. Uh, you know, I didn't like, the, uh, he says something about, you know, I didn't like the way he spoke about Rob either, but listening to people you'd rather not listen to is one of your responsibilities as Lord of Winterfell. And so you got all these kind of views on leadership. Then you toss in Cersei's view on leadership, which is threats uh, and power. This is the famous... Power is power scene. One of my favorite scenes in Game of Thrones. I even have the t-shirt. I should have worn it today. Ah, oh, if I only thought ahead. So you have these different views on leadership. 
which one uh, which ones work best? Well, I think we kind of have some thoughts on it there. Um, Jor Mormont's advice and Maester Lewin's advice, I think, are the ones that are uh, the best approach. You still you still got to make the tough decisions. Listening to people you'd rather not listen to does um, not mean you're just giving them face service or lip service. You're you're gonna and your ear service, eye service, nose service, a lot of services. Doesn't just mean that. It means you might have to listen to them, might have to take advice and uh, not just always go in with your own way. Again, following with the learn how to follow. And as I'm talking, I think about Rob Stark. And Rob's leadership is on display too. Rob, has uh, he plays on the trust of his people. He needs the trust of his people. He's, uh, he's not above giving chances. Uh, we got uh, him sending terms down to the Lannisters that he knows they're not going to take. He's got some grace to what he's doing. But he also takes big risks. He's been um, great with strategy. He's winning the wars. That great scene with him and, and Jamie. Jamie's calling him boy. Uh, you insult yourself, Kingslayer. You've lost uh, to a boy. You're being held uh, captive by a boy. Three, uh, what does Jamie say? Three victories do not make you a conqueror. Aye, but it's better than three defeats. Rob's doing good. I think he's in a good position here. I think Rob's still, um, I'd never call Rob a bad leader in the sense of like Robert Baratheon, who was uh, uh, at one point probably a good guy, but uh, winning and ruling not being the same thing. He was a bad king, not necessarily in the vein of mad, the mad king, Aerys Targaryen, but he, 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 you know, he slipped, he fell. This we know. I don't think Rob's necessary in that category, but it's interesting to watch him in this episode that's about leadership. Um, he is, again, putting a ton of trust in people. Theon, Catelyn Stark. But in, and maybe this is me splitting hairs here. A lot of it here is him making these decisions. Command decisions, which you do need as, as a leader. I don't think they're necessarily on paper the wrong decisions. Again, there's a lot of trust. He has the line... I was going to put this a little bit later in my favorite moments, lines, and scenes, but he has the line. He's talking with Jamie, uh, and Jamie kind of says, you don't trust uh, your own men. And, and Rob says, oh, yeah, I, I, I trust my men with my life, which has some deeper meaning for later on with season three. And uh, I think has uh, a little, you know, Rob Rob starts to... Um, he starts to lose. I think I have, I, we said at the end of uh, last season's breakdowns, I think Rob, Rob's losing almost from the start, even when he's winning. And what I mean by that is, and I'm thinking some of this out loud here, is we've got these quotes, you want to be a leader, we'll learn how to follow. But listening to people you'd rather not listen to is one of your responsibilities as Lord of Winterfell. Look at Rob as King of the North. He's, he's at this point love, but we know he loses the love. And very, very soon, very, very soon, He's going to start not taking advice from Roos Bolton. Uh, the moment you really kind of first meet Roos here in season two uh, uh, and are paying attention to Roos, when you know what's going on, you got Talisa, she's shown up. She's taking care of Lannister injured. And uh, right, that's something that's, uh, uh, Roos is not, a, not for. Now, we don't like Roos. We don't necessarily think um, killing the prisoners and flaying them alive before you do so is good. We 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 like Rob that Rob's standing up against that uh, up against that. But I don't know. If, I don't necessarily know. Again, I, I know I'm kind of splitting uh, splitting hairs here, trying to thread a thread a needle pretty pretty thin here, and not trying to be paint Rob in a bad light. 
But when you dig into the themes, this is the stuff that kind of emerges here. These great questions you, you have and why the show can linger with you. Where did Rob go wrong? I think he, I, I'd say he follows. I think he takes advice from his war council. But he always seems to get his way. And he leads in that way. Not necessarily power is power like Cersei. And I think it's all done for good. Again, he puts a lot of trust in people. But by maybe not listening to them all the time or maybe not following some of their advice, it puts them in, in, in uh, a vulnerable spot for him to say in this episode, I trust my men with my life and it is his men that kill him. It is his men that help him kind of get into the position that he is in at uh, the Red Wedding. Though, eh, let's make sure we put a lot of blame on Rob for uh, breaking his vow and breaking his promise to Walter Frey. His men didn't necessarily do that. But even before then, right from the beginning, we meet Roos Bolton here on the battlefield here in a couple episodes, and he's already like, all right, man, I think we should do this. You don't want to listen to me. And go ahead, even though we're not reviewing it, yeah, go ahead to th- uh, season three, episode 10. That's what Walter Frey and Roos are talking about. Roos is, uh, again, not a good guy, not rooting for him necessarily, but he's just like, yeah, he was a... He didn't listen to my advice, and if he had been a you know a trifle less arrogant, maybe I wouldn't have done this. But Rob, Rob is arrogant is maybe a strong word. I wouldn't necessarily agree with Rob. Rob, and you got to be confident, but is a different kind of leadership um, that Rob's employing, and so he starts losing control almost immediately. In this episode, he sends two people to go um, kind of negotiate on behalf of uh, of uh, the North. Catelyn is going to go meet with Renly. That makes sense. I wouldn't say that turned out bad. Catelyn really never never really got the chance to fully talk to uh, Renly about uh, joining up. But the stuff with Theon goes horribly wrong. Now I'll say this: a lot of that is not Rob's fault. But he has to. He's in a position where he has to put the trust in. He does He does kind of get talked into it by Theon a little bit, but it's also a fact that you know, he needs these ships. So there you go. But he misreads the room a bit. He misreads what he's what the Starks have done. Even Theon in this scene is like, look, I know I'm not a Stark. I'm not a Stark. I know that is his exact quote from Theon. Rob doesn't hear that. He just hears... This plan has to happen for me to lead you all to victory. I'm trying to win, so go win, help me win. Same with Catelyn Stark. She wants to go home. She wants to go back. If Catelyn Stark is at Winterfell, when the Greyjoys show up, does it go any different? Maybe. It might might be worse. She's going to put up a fight, but it would go a little different. Uh, instead, you have Bran there, Rick on there, more vulnerable. And this is stuff that Rob can't foresee. I'm not saying any of this is Rob's fault, but in an episode of leadership, I just was, uh, I was trying to find when I was planning the show, like, where do I put Rob's leadership? Uh, what, what's the quote that uh, kind of encompasses everything, um, everything going on with him? And I don't think it's one of his quotes. I just think take those other quotes and apply it to him. So anyways, I, I don't want to hammer on uh, Rob. He's a good dude. Rob's a good dude. I like Rob Stark, but... These are the different uh, kind of uh, leadership um, leadership things going on. Uh, Stannis, 
Oh, my, oh my man, Stannis. Y'all know I love Stannis Baratheon. I love a lot of things about it. There's a lot of things I do love about the character, and there's things I love that I learn from the character. Next week's episode, uh, Michelle Boyd's going to be guesting on, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about Stannis and probably disagree about Stannis Baratheon. But we get the big introduction. We go to Dragonstone. We meet Melisandre. We meet Davos Seaworth. We see Maester Crescent for a little while, for a little bit. And this is another kind of leadership, kind of my, my way or the highway, and focused on what he deserves and what he feels he deserves, and that's going to be, be the obsession that slowly, over the course of the next uh, four seasons, will be Stannis' undoing. I think there's more powerful stuff next week with Stannis in terms of him really ta- taking that first step out on going the wrong direction, simply because I don't think he believes in this episode in what's going on. I'll burn the idols. I'll say the words. I'll hold up your flame and sword. Fine. But uh, we then see Melisandre drink the poison from Maester Crescent. Crescent dies. Um, now it's starting to get real. Melisandre's power. We do learn a lot of stuff later on with Melisandre about stuff that might have been real, stuff that might have been fake. But this... Her tolerance to the poison, which I always choose to... Is it Iocane powder? Is, uh, you know, Wesley and... Uh, Wesley and, uh, and Princess Buttercup going to show up in this one there? Um, she's got something going on. So maybe Stannis starts to believe. Because up in the... that We get the big scene with him writing the letter, or Matos is uh, writing the letter to him, which is one of my favorite scenes. It, it shows a lot of Stannis, right? You, you were getting a great introduction to Stannis. He's the Kingslayer. Call him what he is. Eh, actually, he's Sir Kingslayer. Uh, he is a knight. I didn't love my brother. I love that line. My beloved Rob. I didn't love Robert Baratheon. He didn't love me. Don't put that in. Don't lie. That's part of what I love about Stannis Baratheon. Just maybe going outside of our leadership theme conversation here. That's You want to know one of the many reasons I love Stannis? He, it, it, it's not just that he's a tell-it-like-it-is kind of guy. I actually don't like those kind of folks too much in the real world. You know... Stannis just, uh, there is just, um, I don't want to say correctness about it. Like, he, he's just, there's a truth to what he's saying. No bullshit with him. And I like that about I respect that. I, I, this letter, this letter writing scene is one of my favorite Stannis moments. It's truth. Hard truth on all sides. Let's just be honest. Let's tell the world the truth. Because the truth supposedly will get me what I want or what I, not necessarily what I want at this point, what I feel I deserve. I do believe it becomes a want. I think when Stannis is faced once again with the wall of no one's going to get you, give you what you deserve. I think he breaks. And when he starts seeing Melisandre's powers, seeing uh, at the end of this sequence, at the end of the, after the, after he writes his letters, when the Maester Crescent stuff, Crescent stuff happens, I think that, I deserve this throne. No one's going to give it to me. Fine, I'm going to take it. And I got this weapon over here, this red woman that I can use to take this uh, crown. I mean, I think it starts to unravel in episode two. But Stannis is, you know, not very popular. I understand it. But anyways, the journey begins here with Stannis. Going back to um, Cersei Lannister and the idea of leadership, uh, two great scenes with Cersei here. I mean, is there a bad scene with Cersei? It's hard, hard to think one. I don't know. Uh, you got the 
Baelish scene. Baelish talking about knowledge is power. Cersei's going to remind him that power is power. But that's her idea of leadership, and I don't think that serves her well in the end. Threats and power, eventually, you'll just create more enemies, which is slowly what's starting to happen here. And she wants control, and she doesn't really have it, something she realizes a little bit later. Her power might be... uh, might be a good tool against a lot of other people, but she has no power over Joffrey. Tyrion is back to really put that uh, in her ears and uh, show it to her face that you can't turn away from this, but she knows it because Joffrey Joffrey has let her know. Um, after she slaps Joffrey, and he, and he deserves it, by the way. He deserves it, by the way. Jo- Joffrey just, you know, Joffrey, Joffrey, and Jack Leeson's so great at it. But this great scene in uh, the Red Keep, Joffrey's doing some interior designing, redecorating. Um, says some horrible things about uh, you know value. You value they value their women too much. Transitions into not just the the, the rumors of Jamie and, and Cersei, which he brings up, but just that. Uh, you know, the bastard thing. Uh, Robert's got a lot of bastards. He clearly uh, was sleeping around on your mom and uh, strikes some chords in Cersei, so she slaps him. And what I love about the scene, it's Lena Headey's face is so great. Again, she tells the story, the, the terror. She knows what she has done. She knows what could happen. Up until that moment, up until that slap, I think in her head, she believes she still has control. Now, that's saying that's saying something, considering season one essentially ends with Joffrey going, my mom wants him to, wants Ned Stark to take the, uh, take the vow and uh, join the Night's Watch. Nah, 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 I'm going to kill him. Cersei's already lost him, this we know, which is why Tywin sends Tyrion back. But I think for me, for my money, this is the moment where it really sets in for Cersei. She has power because power is power over a lot of people. But here comes Joffrey. She slaps him. He lets her slide, but the look on her face says, I can't do that anymore. And there's a great shot. Alan Parker staged this well. Um, He walks up and away from her. And so you're looking at Cersei almost kind of behind the throne. You don't even see him. You just see her watching him walk away. And to me, that is that is just a visual representation of Cersei has lost control over Joffrey. And I think she spends the rest of her time, the rest of this season, trying to protect him. Again, talking about protection in this episode. But trying to maintain control. They don't have Arya. Tyrion is back. He's the hand of the king. Acting hand of the king. She's lost that power. She can't completely assert her will at the small council meetings. And Joffrey is definitely not under her thumb. Take this scene and go back to season one where that's uh, after uh, he's attacked on the King's Road by by Arya and her, her wolf, uh, Nymeria. Uh, you know, she's tending to his wounds and she's counseling him. She's coach, uh, coaching him, hearing his strategies out. That is very much Cersei, the mother, Cersei, the queen, eventually queen regent, kind of grooming Joffrey, working with Joffrey, controlling Joffrey. And Joffrey's listening for the most part. 
I think that's the conversation. He has a lot of theories and ideas, but he he doesn't he doesn't strike her down the moment she kind of pushes back on some of his ideas. Take that scene and put it up against this scene. She has no control. She has no control at all. He is tossing uh, rumors in her face. Uh, in her face, he, he's essentially making fun of her, and she has nothing. Nothing to do about it. She cannot do anything about it. In fact, so this leads into the sequence shortly after. And it's a disturbing sequence, as it should be, uh, where Joffrey, as we eventually learn, goes and uh, has all of Robert's bastards killed. Brutal scene that starts in, of course, uh, Baelish's brothel with a um, Jano Slint, uh, Roz, that, that that situation. And you see, you see what happens. Um it's it's interesting that we, and if you're watching the show play out for the first time and you don't know necessarily what's going to happen, we do kind of assume that it's Cersei, right? It's played as, oh, Cersei had all these bastards erased. Of course she would. It's a reminder that Robert Baratheon stepped out on her. It's a reminder that there's other contenders to the throne and that her actual son, uh, Joffrey, who is, uh, you know, his claim is technically illegitimate. She knows that that's true. Ned said it. Stannis is claiming it. Others are claiming it. She knows deep down. She can't deny it. She can be delusional all she wants, but she, she, she knows that that is true. So it's kind of interesting that as this plays out, the characters, and maybe even us as viewers, if you weren't familiar with the story at this point, might just assume that it's Cersei. This is something Cersei would do, we would think. This is something that Cersei would would need to do to maintain control. But she has no control over Joffrey, and the fact that we learned it's Joffrey that did this, did this without consulting her, did this without a thought for what would happen uh, after this, uh, a thought for what anyone would think, and and, and again, no thought for what Cersei would think. She's lost control. And this is the scene. This is the episode that sets that up. And Jay, uh, uh, excuse me, Joffrey is allowed to uh, rule and be a leader in the way he wants to be up until the bitter end, or at least until Tywin shows up. Tyrion tries. Tyrion's got some good slaps for him coming. So I love that. Uh, I, I'm putting, speaking a lot of this in uh, generality, generalities here. Uh, 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 general, general, general. Wow, sometimes words just don't come when you when you haven't had a sip of this. Mm, we just make up words sometimes here, but the pieces are on the board, and so each episode one, going back to one of my initial thoughts on this episode, each episode one does have some criticisms of, eh, not a lot happens. We're just setting up the season. When you approach these episodes by themes and, and lessons and what you can take from these, these episodes that mean a little bit more, then it gets even more exciting to me. Like, it's, this is a great episode by just saying this is about leadership, the different styles of leadership, and we are heading for a clash. It is a clash of kings, and the show doesn't have the time to go into every detail about that clash of these five kings. We're going to learn Balon Greyjoy's leadership style very soon. The show doesn't have that time. It has a lot more time in season two versus later seasons maybe, but it doesn't have the time to go into the nitty gritty of the four or five kings. It's got to go into the emotions of it, the themes of it, 
And here you have these different leaders and different styles and different beliefs. Throw in what John's learning. Throw in what Cersei thinks. Throw in the decisions Rob Stark has to make. Even throw in Tyrion and his skills of dealing with people and his, uh, his way of being in control. Put it all on the board because we're going to have a great game this season. And this is going to lead up to the big battle. And how do you lead? And what does that get you? That's the War of Five Kings. And I really love that. And this episode becomes more exciting because of that. Also out of this too, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the comet, the red comet. Which, uh, if memory does serve, shows up at the end of book one. Uh, but here we go. Uh, it's the beginning of the show, season two. It is a simple device, but I think a very effective effective device to constantly pan up to that comet and then pan down to a different scene. And it just really also sets the tone by using the comet and having fun and explaining everyone's different view of the comet. And Ocean's is the one that is right. Red comet means only one thing, dragons. But everyone's got a, a different interpretation of it. And therefore, those different interpretations almost become correct for each person. If you believe that Red Comet is about a Lannister victory, then you're going to have a lot of confidence or maybe be dismayed that there's a Lannister victory coming and your actions are going are to follow suit. But by using this comment in the show this way, it's not just a comment on prophecy. It is uh, simply showing us it is one world, one map, with many paths and many destinies. I believe, uh, I believe wholeheartedly that uh, destiny can sometimes be misinterpreted as something that's going to happen regardless. I really believe destiny is what takes you to important choices and that they can go either way. We are now on this board and every one of these characters, including Danny over in the East, uh, who's not in a great position, protection uh, is... She's barely got it. She can barely provide it for what's left of her Kalistar. But she's on a path too. Uh, they're all on a path. And big choices are set to come. So I love all that stuff there. Looking at uh, important foreshadowing, big and small, things with more meaning. Uh, Sir Dantos, uh, Sansa saving him. and uh, We don't really see him much again in season two. I think he's uh, in... Um, you know, uh, entertaining folks when Cersei uh, is uh, drinking herself silly at the Battle of Blackwater Bay. But it's not until, of course, uh, season four that Dantos really comes into play again with what's going on at the Purple Wedding. Uh, I love the uh, Danny talking about, uh, at one point she actually says, no one is going to steal her dragon. Just in terms of uh, season two, the setup, if you're not familiar with the story, you just kind of take that as, yeah, girl, no one's going to steal your dragons. But if you know now, it means a lot more. Uh, I talked about it before, but Rob Stark saying uh, that he trusts his men with his own life. That's, that's tough. That, that, uh, that hurts. Thank you, Bruce Bolton and Walter Frey. I like Tyrion saying to Shay, no one can know you're here. And she, ah, no one will. Uh, I am also doing, I'm doing two rewatches. I'm doing this rewatch for Cashly Talk. And um, my rewatch of my girlfriend now is stretched on to season four. And we're in the trial of uh, Tyrion Lannister. So just this, this Shay being told, no one can know you're here. And she's like, yeah, no one's going to know. That doesn't really work out. Talking about Rob putting his trust in Theon. 
and how it starts to go wrong for Rob. This one, I don't think it's his fault. But I think Theon, the who responds like, hey, let me do this for you. I'm not a Stark. I know that. But, you know, hey, I know my father. Catelyn Stark kind of said, hey, you can't trust Balon, and she was right. And Rob didn't listen. Rob didn't listen. Uh, but again, on paper, this sounds good, but on paper doesn't take into account the fact that you have spent many years becoming a brother with Theon. When Rob is crowned King of the North, we talked about it. He asked Theon, you know, uh, or no, excuse me, Theon asked him, am I, am I your brother? You know, Rob says, yeah, yeah, you are. On paper, I get it, but this goes horribly wrong, and this goes wrong for Theon. Theon makes some choices. Again, destiny brings you to choices. Theon makes some bad choices that Rob could not account for, but Rob's starting to lose it. This is He's making decisions that are going to be a problem. When Winterfell is lost, that's a problem for the King of the North. Um, forming the kind of... Um, Communication path with Jamie, which Catelyn Stark has as well. Uh, making decisions based around what he's got to do to save his sisters. On paper, things I'd agree with, but he's starting to lose it. There is a, a thing to me that has more meaning now. Jon Snow kind of shows in this episode, and they talk, Benny Wise talk about it in the uh, inside the episode after, about Jon kind of being a little frustrated by Ned Stark's upbringing. That comes into play again with Sansa and Arya, which is not to say that Ned was a bad father. I don't think he is by any stretch of imagination. Like any parent, you have to make, and I'm not one, by the way, but you have to make a decision that you think is best for you and your kids and what's best for your kids, and it doesn't always go that way. doesn't mean you're wrong or a bad folk, a bad parent, a bad folk, like a bad folks, like my folks, a bad parent. But John... Sansa, Arya, they all, at, at, at one point or another, seem to express some sort of like, man, if only my dad had said this. Or for John, what who we believe was his father. Uh, Jor Mormont is more of a father figure for him. And um, I think that's um, on display a lot in episode 10 of season one and here. Just a little moment here, just something that has a little more meaning. Uh, I mentioned some of my favorite scenes already here. Uh, Matos writing the letter for Stannis. I just love it. I just love Stannis. I'm sorry. I love Davos. And Davos is, it's it. Davos to me really represents the things he says about Stannis. Even going all the way to season four when he's addressing uh, the Iron Bank, talking about Stannis. His conviction and belief in Stannis. Puzzling to everyone, even in the world, and those of us watching the show, or you all watching the show, to me, Davos and a little bit of Maester Creston in this episode, uh, played for all, all by played by uh, Oliver Ford Davies, Co. Bibble from uh, Phantom Menace and uh, the, the prequels. They represent what Stannis was: hard, harsh, fair, and just, not friendly. We get it. Would I go far as to call Stannis a good man? I actually would. We don't see it. When we pick it up right now, I think Stannis is stepping away from the label of, hey, he's a good guy. And that's someone who loves Stannis Baratheon. I really do. Davos represents 
And his view of Stannis represents what Stannis was, which is, again, part of the lesson. And I'll, I'll be talking about that more even as soon as next week, so I don't want to go into it too much here. So I love that scene. I love everything. I love how we meet Davos. And it's a great introduction for Melisandre. Chris Van Houten shows up, joins the show, and is a standout character in this episode. We're going to meet a lot of cool people. A lot of characters that you forget weren't there season one. Davos is one. Stannis is mentioned in season one, but he shows up. Melisandre, the Tyrells, uh, uh, all those kind of characters that just seem to be a part of the show. You forget that they weren't there. And you hate that they left it or, or moved on or passed on, you know. Um, but uh, I, I love this introduction of Melisandre. She just stands out. It's so mysterious. It's foreboding, ominous, dangerous, a little sexy, and a lot of fire. And when she stands over Maester Crescent and just says, the night is dark and full of terrors, and he's dead and blood is pouring out of his poison-drenched face that he served himself, and she's sipping the wine like it ain't no thing. As far as introductions go to characters, even just Game of Thrones, but even beyond other TV shows, it's a big win for me. I love uh, Catelyn Stark's line, there's a king in every corner now, just kind of fun. Uh, and then we talked a lot about Cersei flapping Joffrey. I do want to, in terms of uh, episode stars, as we begin to uh, wrap up here, a little bit of a shorter episode this week. Uh, Elias Gebel is, uh, plays Ricaro. Uh, this is kind of all he gets, but a great kind of touching little moment with Daenerys as she sends him off. Last Blood Rider, Blood of My Blood. Which is, by the way, I think it's season one with, you know, our big deaths in season one. What, uh, Viserys and Ned? There's others, of course, but Viserys and Ned, they don't really get what I, what kind of becomes a staple of, of Game of Thrones with it, with it, with Ricaro, a, a character that you get a moment with that pulls on your heartstrings where you go, oh, what a great moment. Barristan Selmy, I love him. He just told a great story to Danny about Rhaegar and Barristan's, oh no, Barristan's going to die. That just kind of became a thing, right? We started to know that. I'd say even with Oberyn Martell, we spend a season with him and we love him. Memorable introductions. Speaking of introductions, he gets a great one too in uh, season four, episode one. But uh, his I'll stand for you, I'll be your champion speech to Tyrion. You're like, yeah, oh, wait, that can't be good. That's something we just came to expect. Yorin gets a great one a little bit later in the season. We're like, what a story. Oh, no. I think for me, this, this Ricaro scene is, is like kind of the first one that stands out. Great moment. He and Danny connected. She needs him to do this to protect her people. He's going to do it because he's a blood rider. I'll come back. I'll find the way out. Eh, his head comes back. Uh, yeah. I think it becomes a tradition in this first one. But I want to shout him out. He's great in season one. Ricaro's all the way through season one. Uh, he stands out. So um, give give him a shout out. Ricaro, uh, an episode star for me. Uh, Mel- Melisandre, Chris Van Houten is another one for me. And uh, Davos, uh, you know, Liam uh, Cunningham. Uh, just, and I've kind of got a Davos beard going today. It's a little thicker. I need to trim it up. But I don't look like Davos, uh, uh, the Hand of the King Davos. I look like Davos after the war on a rock Davos is what my beard looks like right now. For those watching on YouTube, for those listening, just imagine a really disheveled Davos. That's what I look like today. 
Um, I love um, the moment you meet Davos. He doesn't say much while they're out there burning the idols. Liam Cunningham just is able to project just kind of a, a warmth, a calmness, a level-headedness that just, he really, every action with Davos carries it on. He becomes that guy. He becomes maybe a father figure, an uncle figure, a family member figure to all of us in this show constantly. And uh, I just, uh, I think it, it, it's established very early on. You got all these, you got Stannis, you finally meet Stannis. This is Stannis, Stephen Delane. Uh, so good, just kind of bringing that stern grumpiness, the distance, no warmth with Stannis, even with fires around him. Melisandre's uh, cool, sexy, and witchy, and definitely dangerous. And then there's Davos. In the middle of all, there's Davos. Quiet, serene, calm, comforting Davos. So Liam Cunningham, that's for you too. Uh, that is about the, it this week. Uh, I got to do wrap up this episode a little bit earlier, but uh, love uh, talking with you all about uh, the second season. There's going to be so many cool things coming. Uh, more people coming in to talk on the show, of course, but just uh, so much stuff going on in this season. I love uh, the Tywin Arya stuff. Uh, we're going to get into that. Uh, uh, Jamie and his his journey. Uh, Brienne, Renly, um, Marjorie Tyrell, just an amazing character. And, and um, I just think there's a ton there that the season brings out. And I'm glad uh, it has a, uh, a, a glad people appreciate season two. And of course, can't wait to talk battle of Blackwater Bay. We'll have more of your calls uh, on future episodes too. Sometimes lately I've been doing some pre-recording. I apologize. So if you're calling in on anchor, we got a, a great, uh, what if call from Addy. I'm going to get to the, those calls, Addy, you put some good stuff out there. Um, but if you have a call uh, that you want to um, send in that's about any episode in season two, just do it. I'll keep it and I'll use it for the right episode. You don't necessarily have to do it week to week. You can call in via the Anchor app. Uh, as always, you can uh, follow me uh, at Catnapsock. You can go to my website, catnapsock.com, for all the things that I got going on, all the podcasts, all the crazy things, and more on the way. So uh, thank you so much for listening and watching Casterly Talk. See you next week, friends.